Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Recovering Entrepreneur Show. Bobby the Awesome here. And today I am joined by Dr. Alan Lindemann. Welcome to the show. I'm going to call you Dr. Alan. I like that. that. That's fine with me. Thank you. Uh, why don't you kick us off by introducing yourself, which will give away, I think, probably some of the topic we're going to talk about. Well, I'm Alan Lindemann, Dr. Lindemann, graduated medical school in 1977, so a long time ago. I've been taking care of patients since 1970, so 53 years. I uh, had my residency in St. Paul, Minneapolis, and I really have enjoyed the years of practice. I've delivered about 6,000 babies with no maternal mortality, and it's been fun. It's been very rewarding. There's no rush like a ba- delivering a baby. I'll tell you, my my medical experience in the baby arena is about Gray's Anatomy. That's probably about the extent of my my knowledge. But six thousand successful births sounds amazing to not have any issues with the moms. So congratulations on your success with that. Well, thank you, and we can talk a little bit about that if you want to. But like I said. I have some other things to start with if you're ready. Absolutely. I just I just had to acknowledge that because that just sounds incredible and, and probably not something that a lot of people could brag about. So, yes, we are going to talk about pregnancy today. So I will let you kick us off. Well, thank you. One of the things that we don't talk about a lot is autonomy. But this is a quiet movement that's becoming more popular In other words, there are more and more moms who have an idea of what they want, and they want to know how to get it. So we've written a book. It's called Pregnancy Your Way, and we have devoted a chapter uh, to getting interviewing your doctor. So uh, there are many um, roadblocks to health care. One of them is your insurance policy. They decide... Um, how many visits you're going to get, and often who you're going to see and what hospital you want to go to. But you can intervene uh, with that process, and you can actually interview doctors. Now, sometimes doctors don't like that. They call it doctor hopping or doctor shopping and put a negative spin on it. But I've been doing that for years. I've been the interviewee, and uh, I'm not afraid of it. So But these are some of the things you can ask your doctor, uh, like, uh, will I see you with every visit, or who will I see, and can I get to see the other people so I know them? Uh, Also, how many C-sections have you done, or what's your C-section rate? Questions to ask. Um, What hospital? You want to ask a question. I do. Well, you're giving great questions, but my my question was on the C-section, like, are you going to speak about what answers they should be expecting on something like that? Like, what is a good C-section rate? Well, thank you for asking the question. You know, today in our uh, obstetric circle, our obstetric world, we're looking at a C-section rate of about 32 or 33%. And of course, that's going up every year. Uh, In my first practice, I ran into a C-section rate of 15%. I thought it was high um, because in my residency, my C-section rate was 10%. So I would say if you have a doctor, if they answer the question, I don't know, 
or if the answer to the question, my C-section rate is 50%, maybe you need to think about finding somebody with a lower C-section rate. It takes work to avoid a C-section and commitment from doctors and moms. Okay. I didn't know that that was a benchmark. Like through some of the experts I've chatted with in the books I read, I I get the sense that having a C-section is not the best option, that that maybe allergies and things, I know I'm going off topic, but you're a doctor and you're smart and I know you're gonna be able to answer me. So, but I'm learning things like if, if you don't have a birth that goes through the birth channel, that's where some of these kids tend to have more allergies and they don't have like the, the bacteria they need to make them little supermen. Um, that's my impression, like that a C-section takes away some of that. Um, but it, is there a better technical way of why you wouldn't really want a C-section? Well, yes. And you're asking a good question, which has to do with what I call the hormone cascade. And the hormone cascade works best for natural labor. Uh, What women need and want when they come into labor and delivery is quiet, warm, and dark. Those things help your labor. They make you feel comfortable and help the hormone cascade begin. Um, uh, Prostaglandin is one of the main things you need for early labor. But during that process, you get oxytocin, which helps your uterus contract, cervix dilate, baby come down. But it also, in the hormone cascade, you get feel-good hormones, like um, they're analogous to morphine. And they relieve pain, but they also promote bonding. And when you promote bonding, you're promoting milk letdown. When you're talking about milk letdown, you're talking about um, immune um, assistance coming from the mom to the baby. So the baby will be stronger and healthier, happier uh, with uh, breast milk. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody's going to breastfeed or everybody wants to breastfeed, but at least some amount of breastfeeding is good for you and good for the baby. So yes, you know, the other thing, the other side of this coin is we've never studied the disadvantages of, pardon me, of an induced delivery. Now, for example, there's no study at five years old that says, oh, these children have more or less ADHD or their intelligence level is higher or lower. So we've never actually done any safety studies that says inductions are safe or that uh, ruptured membranes at two centimeters is safe. Wow. So yes, I'm sorry. You have another question. No, this is just fascinating to me. Um, And I I feel bad because I interrupted. So we will circle back to some of your other questions because you were, you were on a roll and I totally interrupted. So as they're doctor shopping, um, which I actually think is good, right? We shop for everything that's the best fit. So I think that that's a great exercise and that people shouldn't be offended. Not everybody is met for each other. You're absolutely right. You should, above all things, you should have a doctor who you like, who you can talk with, who will answer your questions, who will actually sit down and listen to what you have to say 
you know, body language is extremely important during an interview. And if you've got a doctor who doesn't sit down or who stands up with the hand on the doorknob, that's a bad sign. So find somebody who will sit down with you and talk and listen and actively answer your questions. Love that. Okay, so that's the very first start, right? Is to find the right doctor. Do you want to take it from there? I don't want to mess up your momentum. Oh, thank you. Yes, well, once you decide, first of all, don't feel ashamed and don't feel nervous and don't be intimidated. You may not find the doctor you want on the first visit. You know, they may be able, you may want to have one doctor at your delivery or maybe two. But if you were met with, say, six or eight, and you have a chance of getting to labor and delivery and not even knowing the doctor, that's mm-hmm. maybe a time to find somebody else. So uh, again, don't be afraid. Just do it. You have a right to do it. Well, you should also get every, all the appointments you need to have, not just what insurance will pay for. And you need to have a good postpartum In our country, postpartum ends at six weeks. And that's because the uterus has gone back down to normal. But postpartum depression can be a real problem. And a lot of times we don't see it. It it doesn't even start at six weeks. One of the fun, you have a question. No, that's very interesting to me what you just said, that the depression may not start in that first six weeks. I have a friend that's so serious about this. She lost a sister-in-law that jumped off a building with the baby in hand due to postpartum depression. The baby survived. I have no idea how it must be an angel on earth, um, but she's a big advocate on it. And I guess, I guess I just didn't know what I didn't know. So that was a very staggering thing you just said to me. Well, let me tell you this. The number one cause now of maternal mortality is something we call behavioral. And that is exactly what you're talking about. In this group, it's depression, it's um, suicide, homicide, and drug overdose. So, you know, even 20 years ago, you would not have seen that. I never saw anybody suicide. I never saw any homicides. Because it turns out the women who suicide are Caucasian women who are highly educated. And you'd think that that wouldn't happen. You'd think the education would come in, but it doesn't. It, it, as a matter of fact, I think they're probably more likely to miss the person that they were before they were pregnant. And that's really what postpartum depression is all about. That is losing what you had before. And if you talk about, or if you look at ACOG, that is the American College of OBGYN, they'll, they define it as after baby blues. Baby blues are three to seven days. Postpartum depression would be seven days to uh, six months. And then after that is psychosis. And that's where things get sour, get to be deadly. And I know that's kind of heavy for you and your audience, but you brought up the suicide. So, yeah, I, I, I just, it, it's good. I think awareness, awareness is a big part of my mission. So I wouldn't have thought of that. I wouldn't have 
I wouldn't have expected to hear suicide and homicide in relationship to giving birth. People, all right, can I be honest with you on my yes. perception? Okay. When people have babies, everybody makes it sound like it's all rainbows and unicorns, right? Everybody is like, they might say they're tired. TV shows might joke about it. And I've only ever had one friend that actually just said to me, like, life is freaking hard, like in that raw, vulnerable way where it was like, I don't want to say like she resented her daughter or anything, but she like admitted the challenges of it where everybody else just kind of tells you like, it's okay. And, you know, the cute clothes and it's the lens as an outsider looks just very different. So you sharing that stuff may make some awareness for people who looked at it like I did until this one friend confessed to me how she was really feeling. I'd say uh, kudos to your friend because she is not alone. Uh, there are most women who feel like you're describing. It's not rainbows and unicorns. They don't talk about it because they know better than to talk about it. They know that everybody expects to, them to say, oh, I'm so happy to have this new baby at home. What they don't talk about is, gee, I'm up at 12 o'clock, I'm up again at 2 o'clock, I'm up again at 3 o'clock, uh, and then I have to get up and go to work at 5.30, uh, and my husband doesn't help me, and he doesn't do dishes, and he doesn't clean the breast pump, he can't clean the bathroom, he can't vacuum. The, the thing about it is, if you want to have a good postpartum, that it's the best postpartum possible, and you want to avoid a lot of heavy-duty depression and psychosis. You have to get ready for delivery. You have to get ready for what happens afterwards. And part of that is, oh, this is more difficult than people let on. Uh, one of the things I did, I, I, I tried to identify people who I thought might get into trouble. And I also thought of steering people, even if they, I thought they were going to have a great postpartum I was into steering them. And the way I did that was I would invite, of course, the moms were always welcome anytime, but welcome with them were their husbands or significant others and their children. So I could see how that family was working. Mm. And I could get the children to say, to realize that there's a human in there. And so they could start bonding before they got home. Oh, that's beautiful. It was fun. <laughs> I, I, again, didn't think about the sibling if they are bonding and getting ahead. I'm just now learning that things that happen when women are pregnant impact the baby for life. Like uh, the roads can lead to where they end up gambling addicts like me or whatever, um, that there is trauma, that there is memory, that there is all this stuff. Um, so I think what you're expressing about the before, the after, the always is just very important. Well, like I said, it's been fun. And, you know, there's a whole lot of people who say postpartum depression is mysterious and surprising, but actually it really isn't either. Uh, it is something that it helps if you expect it, if you can anticipate it, if you think, oh, yes, it's possible you could be uh, depressed. Uh, you know, going home is important. So it's 
two people. It's at least mom and dad. So dad can get up with the baby sometimes, you know, every other time. Dad can wash the breast pump. Dad can vacuum the floors. Dad can clean the pot. Oh, and these are things you need to decide before you go home because it gets kind of muddy once you get home. You start getting into blaming and uh, arguing and fighting and nonstop, unresolved conflict. Yeah. So we're talking so far about pregnancy do's and don'ts. So we're talking about all the things relative to the doctor, um, the shop, you know, picking the doctor and getting the right plan in place. Um, is there, is there other do's or that impact this process uh, for the woman or the family? Yes, there are many do's and, and, you know, I want to go back just a little bit before we finish that. The child that is at greatest risk, say, for example, you have three children, you're pregnant with the fourth. It's the third, third child that is the child that will be displaced. So that's the one you have to pay most attention to. So it's the displaced child who is more likely to act up and to give you problems once you get home. Is there a reason other than the number? Competition. Uh, this is my place and you are not invading it. Okay. So anyway, we'll go, we'll lighten up a little bit here. Other, other do's. <laughs> Do gain the right amount of weight. Uh, two to three pounds a month. Do eat correctly. And that would mean a well-balanced diet. You know, we have the diet Nazis out now that everything, everything is supposed to be carbohydrates. Mm. We see on TV, a good breakfast, toast or orange juice. Well, no, that's not a good diet. That's a carbohydrate load. And most people now for breakfast, it's cold cereal, skim milk, glass of juice, and maybe a piece of toast. Well, that's not a good breakfast for pregnancy. About half an hour to an hour after you eat that, you'll be nauseated and you probably feel like vomiting. Mm. So what I recommend, especially for mothers who have trouble eating and trouble gaining weight, and incidentally, I have not had any patients who have required feeding through their nose or feeding through their veins. They've all benefited from what am I, I'm about to say, and that is, Especially if you have trouble, put something beside your bed. Uh, maybe some uh, apple juice, maybe an apple, orange, granola bar, um, something that you can eat. And then just lie down for, say, 10 minutes or so. Let it kind of settle a little bit. Then get up and eat another breakfast. Okay. Eat one that should contain a balanced diet. For example, fat protein, and carbohydrates. So if you really want to stick with your breakfast of cold cereal and skim milk, I'd say at least change the milk to whole milk. Uh, substitute orange juice or apple juice for a real orange or a real apple. Um, you can have your cold cereal if you must, but oatmeal would be better. And try to get an egg or cottage cheese or some kind of cheese so you get protein and um, 
fat. And that will even out your blood sugar. You see, the thing that makes you nauseated after eating when you're pregnant, blood sugar goes way up and your pancreas sees it and then your blood sugar goes way down. And when it's way down, that's when you feel sick. That's when you vomit. Also, eat before you shower. Don't shower first or you'll wind up feeling faint and weak. And don't eat in the car. So, and eat three big meals and three small meals a day. So that's the do's and don'ts for eating. Wow. Six meals a day. Yeah. Little, you know, like a diabetic. Three big meals, three little meals. Okay. I get it. (laughs) Do you, are you okay with, so you said if they have to have like some sort of cereal, like if they wanted bacon and eggs, is that okay? I would love that. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) You know, and this I learned from my um, patients. They say, oh, gee, I feel so much better if I eat a big breakfast. Or, uh, oh, uh, my sugar is so much easier to manage if I eat a big breakfast. And this is from my diabetic patients. So, yeah, big breakfast is really important. Do the things that you're speaking about impact, uh, I believe there's a word for it, the diabetes for when you're just pregnant? Oh, gestational diabetes. Yes. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, eating a good breakfast actually helps you control your blood sugar. And that's whether whether you're a childhood onset or whether you've got gestational diabetes, a big breakfast will help you. And, uh, you know, the other two big meals, something at noon and something um, for dinner and uh, in the middle. So the apple granola, the the food by the bed trick is what helps contain morning sickness. Is that what you were inferring? I think so. I think that's a really good way to start out the morning because it what it does, it gives you a gentle blood sugar elevation. It, you stay away from the peaks and from the dives of blood sugar and you feel better. Okay. What about prenatal vitamins? How important are those? Well, you know, there's a whole bunch of things in there and there's always people talking about, now the latest thing is, oh, they're not as good as we thought they were. Well, read the directions. You should have folic acid. <clears throat> Pardon me. Folic acid would be, I better get the frog out of my... I, I can keep us amused for a minute. Okay. <laughs> okay. Folic acid, 400 micrograms a day. That's the least you should have. More if you have a history of a baby with a cleft palate or a cleft lip. Um, Iron you need to have, but the problem with iron is it makes you nauseated and it makes you constipated. And those are two problems that pregnant women don't want to have. So I recommend, yes, take your prenatal vitamin, but there are other ways to get iron. Uh, for example, any fruit that's red has iron in it. The, the, the color red comes from iron. Uh, so, you know, apples, uh, raisins, plums, uh, you can probably prunes. Uh, and uh, the same thing is true for vegetables, uh, radishes. Um, and tomatoes. 
Yep, tomatoes would be good, yes. And uh, then, of course, meat, you know, red meat has iron in it. Um, so, yes, try to get some iron from your um, from your diet. And, of course, you need to have your hemoglobin level checked and your ferritin level checked uh, at your first visit, among other things, of course. What's ferritin? What's ferritin? What's its job? Well, you know, it's it's the first thing. Say, for example, you're heading for anemia, but your hemoglobin is normal. Your ferritin level will be low. That is a direct measurement of the iron in your blood. So it is the first thing that drops before you get anemia. So it's kind of a warning sign. Oh, look out, watch out. This is coming up. Let's not have anemia. So we need a little bit more iron in our diets. I had, you said something about a, you made a correlation between a food or a vitamin and cleft palate or cleft chin. How do you know that? You're talking about before the baby's born. Absolutely. And yes, you know, um, ultrasound is really important now in prenatal care. Of course, there are some people, a few, a small amount, who say that it's not as safe as we think it is. Now, the official view is that it's not harmful, but they also say keep the exams to a minimum, and I think some of that has to do with expense. But you can see a cleft lip on ultrasound and probably even a cleft palate on ultrasound. Wow. Wow, science. This question just totally occurred to me. I know we still have to do don'ts and whatever else um, you'd like to cover, but what has been the biggest change or biggest, like you've been practicing medicine 40 plus years, right? If the math serves me. What's like the biggest change and what's the biggest thing that stayed the same? Do you have an example of each of those? Um, yes. Um, when I think of changes as the biggest change, I think of something that we call the doc on deck. And that means that there's one doctor in labor and delivery for, say, 12 or 24 hours. And that one doctor delivers all the babies who come in. Um, so you may not see your doctor. And I think that's sad. I think it's harmful to the mom and the baby. You know, a pregnant woman in labor and delivery needs security. They need safety. They need to feel safe and comfortable. They they need to know those things. And there's nothing like a familiar face or two to help you feel more confident, more comfortable. A lot of times I came into a delivery room and the patient was screaming and all upset and I can't do this, I can't do this. And I I would reach inside of her head and I'd say, yes, you can do this. You know, we're going to do this. You're almost there. You know, give me 15 more minutes and this will be done. And so that's important for mom. It's also, I think, really important for baby and it's important for success. So that, you know, years ago, I went to a conference at Mayo. And this lady presented a paper that said, oh, gee, uh, if we gave the patients fewer prenatal visits, nothing bad happens to them. 
And my response to that is, that's only true if the care is bad. (laughs) (laughs) It took me a second, but I'm with you. Yes. (laughs) Right. You know, if the care is good, that's exactly what they need is to see one person every time. You know, that's the way you get to know about, oh, how afraid are you of your postpartum? You know, how afraid are you of what you're going to do with this baby when you go home? How do you feel about uh, women birthing at home? Well, I can tell you this. When I was just, you know, 40 years ago when I was young, I believed everything I was told. So home births were bad. Hospital births were good. Now, of course, I have, I don't have those judgments anymore. I can see for my myself. And so I think that home, we're going to see more home births. And this is, goes back to one of the first things we talked about, which is patient autonomy. You know, I mean, the medical world and all the people participating in it, in it need to know this is coming up every year we're going to see more moms more dads wanting patient autonomy wanting choice i mean real choice yeah so yeah that's uh choice is important i agree i agree that's what my whole platform is based on um is Everybody Recovers Different, I think is going to be the name of a book and me and some of my experts, because it, it's the same thing. Everybody's preferences and comfort levels and needs and wants are all going to be different. So I think it's the same no matter how you apply it. And I think, especially if we look at like employment in this country right now, it goes to show that like people making choices kind of has the power. It's influencing. It's if you could do it with your livelihood, you can do it with anything. Well, yes, choice is important. And that's what home birth offers you is choice and comfort. And also maybe uh, one or two options for who's going to be with you. Um, One of the things to know about home birth is that most of those births are done by uh, by a group that we call lay midwives. Now, lay midwives are midwives who have learned one from another but have no official or formal training. Uh, That's to be uh, distinguished from a certified midwife who usually has a four-year RN degree and then a two-year master's degree. But they see patients in the clinic and they do their deliveries in the hospital. So about the only thing you gain by a certified midwife is maybe seeing the same person that you have seen all throughout your pregnancy. So there's comfort in that. That makes sense. So do we have more do's or are we moving on to don'ts? Well, I have one more do. <laughs> and, you know, you have, uh, the whole world is talking a little bit now about preeclampsia. I've heard that term. Yeah. Well, that's a combination of high blood pressure, um, hyper, too many reflexes and protein in your urine. And it can be, deadly. Uh, It can uh, be associated with strokes. You know, who wants to be 25 years old 
and wind up half paralyzed in a nursing home or worse yet dead yeah so these strokes are very dangerous but they are easily avoided and one of the things i always did with my patients if their blood pressure went up even a little bit like say even five or ten degrees I would have send them home with their own blood pressure cuff and they would get to see how their blood pressures ran. And for the most part, there was there were no surprises. Again, this is another one of those things that's called surprising and mysterious. It isn't. All you have to do is look at the right things. And the right thing is that one blood pressure that goes up. Doesn't matter that it comes down again. It matters that it went up. Hmm. Interesting. So uh, you want to go into don'ts? <laughs> Do you want to go into don'ts, Dr. Allen? <laughs> well, let me see. Um, Maybe we should just stay with some do's for a while. I was looking at, you know, some of the reasons to go to see your doctor, some emergencies, like um, if you think you're having preterm labor. Uh, I had a patient once, actually, she was my neighbor, came in at 25 weeks, she said, oh, I have, I'm having Braxton Hicks every five minutes. I thought, no, you're not having Braxton Hicks every five minutes. You're either having Braxton Hicks or you're in labor every five minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So I checked her cervix and she was about five centimeters and quite thin. So I put her in the hospital and we kept her there actually for, about 10 weeks. Well, I let her, yeah, 10 weeks. Let her out at about 35 weeks. Saw her once a week in the clinic. She delivered at term. So it's uh, strange, you know, but so if you think you're having contractions every five minutes, do go in and don't stay home. Yeah. And, you know, Everybody knows if their cord comes out, they shouldn't stay home. They should go in. Uh, And if they have bleeding, it doesn't really matter even when. But say, for example, you're 39 weeks and you have bloody show. Well, you're in labor. Well, if you're 25 weeks and having bloody show, you're probably still in labor, but there's a big difference. So do go in and don't stay home. How old do you, how do you feel about, I I think there's this, I don't know if it's stigma or reality or science. I don't know what it is, but like after 40, don't have babies. How do you feel about that statement? Well, you know, if you look at the maternal mortality rate, you look at what people say about it. For example, uh, from 20 to 21, our maternal mortality rate went from, it went well, it depends on what color you are. If you are white, it went from 20 to 25. If you're Native American or Native Alaskan, it went from it went to about 40 from 25. And if you're looking at Afro-American women, it went from 45 to 75. So, yeah, um, that we do see a lot of... Uh, change in maternal mortality. And um, the number one cause of that 
uh, at least for Afro-American women, is um, high blood pressure. So, and there has there's actually a new study out on that. They have been given blood pressure cups, like I used. I've done that for since 1975. But you know, I didn't have the fancy cuffs, the ones that will tell the nurses what the blood pressure is. My patients had to actually check their own blood pressure and then call me. Mm. But this apparently, according to the study, has helped a lot. I'm just kind of wondering, why do we have to have an expensive cuff that will limit the amount of cuffs we can give to people? Why not have a cheap cuff? <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, it, it's just a matter about getting the information. Yeah. So just to be super clear for my audience and for me, because what I thought I heard you say was over 40 African-American women went from 40% mortality, or is it called immortality? It, it's called, it's uh, 45 per 100,000. Oh, thank God. I thought you were talking 45 um, for every 100. I'm sorry. I might have said that, but I was wrong if I did. It's 45 per 100,000 uh, up to 75 per 100,000. Yeah, and it's, and it's big... still not good, but it's a lot better. That's why I had to clarify these percents because I'm like, whoa. I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. I think I probably did say percent. My apologies. No problem. No problem. I'm glad I, I asked the clarifying question. It's still, that's, those are still pretty high numbers when you look probably compared to all kinds of other ways to die for every hundred thousand people. We uh, compare to Iran as far as our maternal mortality rate. Uh, we rank between 33 and 36 and that's out of 33 or 36. We're about the last as far as developed countries. If you look at good maternal mortality rates, like they have in in uh, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Japan, we're looking at two per hundred thousand. Wow! So you see, there's quite a difference. So, what are we doing? Or what are they doing that we aren't? That was going to be my next question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping your audience wants to know. Anyway, this is what they do that we don't do. In the first place, maternity care is free. They, everybody has access. And one of our problems in our country is we don't have access. You know, insurance prevents good access. Um, even, you know, like Medicaid prevents good access. So we, in this country, have so much health care. We spend more than anybody else, by the way. Our main problem with our maternal mortality rate is access. So if you look at people in the uh, Scandinavian countries and Japan, what they have is access and as much access as they want. They also have choice. So uh, they have the choice of going to see a doctor. They can have a delivery in the hospital with a doctor. They can have delivery in a birthing center with a midwife, or they can have delivery at home with a midwife. And they see the same midwife every time. I don't know about the doctors, but yeah, it's it's really just delivering care is makes is what makes a difference. Wow. Wow. What good news do you have for me? Good news? 
Yeah. What good news do you have? Because because we have talked about a lot of hard things, and I think this is good for the audience, not to be scared, but to be educated, just like on anything else. So thank you, by the way, for for sharing this message and uh, taking the time to educate people. Well, I think the good news is, and this is from my perspective, but, you know, we started talking, we started this with choice and autonomy. And I see this coming. Part of the problem is that I think we're going to drag medical world kicking and screaming into patient autonomy. So I think it's not, this is not a movement that's going to start from the medical providers. It's going to start from the public what your audience is going to ask of their providers. I think that's actually good news. And you're, are you still practicing? Are you still delivering babies? Well, I tell you what, I'm 75 years old and I've been retired for about a year, but, um, and I'm in, our next book is coming out. It's at the last editor. It's called, guess what? Pregnancy your way. Love it. So we spend, we do spend time about talking about, you know, what questions you can ask your doctor. How do you interview your doctor or your healthcare provider? And we spend a lot of time on postpartum depression. So in other words, like we've talked about today, these feelings, you know, so yeah, I'm, this is a hard job and it takes me some time to get used to it. Those are the things we talk about. So your re-inspirement, which a podcast guest gave me, because um, I like that better than re-retirement, it's re-inspirement. So your re-inspirement is to help educate families and moms um, of the ways to have nice, successful uh, pregnancies, experiences with their pregnancies. And you help them, you and your wife help them with that outside of the book. Is that what you're saying? Well, we do have a website. It's called PregnancyYourWay.com. And yes, we can do that. Uh, I also have wanted to marry the website and the book so that when people buy the book, they also have access to the website. You know, so they buy a, a living book because the website will change. Right. You can probably get like a QR code or a link or something put right in the book, like right on the back of the book cover. You can probably have a QR code that takes them there. Yep. That's my goal. All right. Good stuff. Well, is there anything I forgot to ask you that you wanted to mention? I appreciate you keeping me in check. I love that you had your plan and um, (laughs) we got to cover a lot of really interesting things. Well, thank you. I I know I tend to get uh, heavy into heavy stuff, but. Anyway, we got in and we got out. So, and my wife is telling me now we should talk about the blog. So we'll do that. Yes. I'm an MD. She says, make sure we get that in there. So what was the name of it? It's Lindemann MD. All right. So L-I-N-D-E-M-A-N-N. You got it. Boy, I tell you, a lot of people have trouble with that. I cheated. It's on my screen. (laughs) don't tell (laughs) at least it's on your screen (laughs) so great so so they can read up on this stuff in greater detail than we chatted about today the book will be coming out sometime this year it sounds like right well it's supposed to be ready in four months they tell us so uh, we'll see i'm hoping that it does come out but yeah this is uh 
the next phase and I'm just doing what I have enjoyed doing the most in life, which is listening mm. and talking a little bit. No, I've heard some people say, how do you ever learn anything? You talk all the time. So anyway, I took <laughs> that to heart. <laughs> I'll tell you, it's it's changed the trajectory of my life working on listening and communication skills. Like it really has. And I, and I give the podcast a lot of credit for it because I was a know-it-all and I love to talk. So um, it's, it is good and it's, it's humbling, but it is helpful when we do listen. Yeah. Active listening, you know, people don't come back to you if you can't listen to them. Yeah. So true. Well, please thank your wife for me. Hopefully she can hear me as we're chatting. Um, I love that she's supporting you right there by your side. That's beautiful as well. Thank you. Thank you. You're very welcome. You're not mine.